What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. Keeping New York commutes on track. MTA CEO Jono Lieber talks subway price hikes, congestion, and crime. When you and I were together about a year ago, we were talking a lot about subway safety. Right. Subway crime is down over 5% over a year ago, but it's lower than it was pre-pandemic. And a war brewing. Jacob Helberg, commissioner of the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review, has a stark warning for tech and political leaders. Xi Jinping has been increasingly ratcheting up his rhetoric uh, into a more bellicose, you know, manner. And a lot of signs point to a potential armed conflict between the U.S. and China, potentially within the next decade. All that today. Plus, BMW, no longer in the hot seat for hot seats. Elon Musk's power in Ukraine and Apple in the sights of Chinese regulators. Tim Cook has been so good at walking that tightrope between being a U.S. company but also being a multinational. It's Friday, September 8th, 2023. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Happy Friday, everybody. Goldman Sachs' CEO David Solomon speaking to David Faber just yesterday at the uh, bank's Cornucopian Tech Conference out in San Francisco. We spoke about the strength in the bank's private credit business with more than $100 billion in private credit on Goldman's wealth management platform. I think given the shift in the interest rate environment, and the change in the capital markets that we've kind of gone through and the shift that we're experiencing right now, that's obviously making those markets very, very attractive. So I think that's an area where, one, <clears throat> there's real opportunity for players that are private credit players, but there's also real opportunity for an institution like ours that finances all of their positions, mm -hmm. that helps put deals together in that space. Solomon also addressed some of the recent negative media coverage of his leadership at the bank. It's not fun, you know, obviously watching... Uh, some of the personal attacks in the press. Obviously, we're a big organization. We're doing a lot of things in the world. And, you know, we should be scrutinized, and we are scrutinized. And, you know, we watch that, you know, that, that scrutiny very, very carefully. I don't recognize the caricature that's been painted of me. I have a lot of colleagues and clients I talk to. They don't recognize that caricature either. And I tell you, a lot of them, particularly my colleagues, are not shy about expressing their, uh, <laughs> their, their, uh, their personal views. Um, but look, I always reflect on it. You, you always look at it. And we're focused on doing what we're doing. It was an interesting inter interview to hear him both express the issues around some of the, the negative media coverage. But I actually thought the credit piece was actually, oddly enough, more interesting because it really expresses sort of wh where at least that bank thinks this whole world is going. I don't know if you think he's right, guys. Who was before Paulson? They've always had... Corzine. Corzine even had oh. a pretty... He, he, but he didn't... And then before him was... They're always bigger than life types at the helm. Rarely do they get much negative press because 
That's not true at all. I was well, thinking who? of the black squid. What about, what no, no about? I don't mean that. I mean about their, oh, about, about how effective they are yeah. as, as CEOs. Lloyd was sort of a, a lion of Wall Street, wasn't he? Do you think, I mean, in front of the he U.S. government. He was a lion of Wall Street maybe. by the end, but I'm not sure he was a lion in the middle. But do you have, remember any, where you're questioning whether the guy in charge is, is, is really the guy who should be in charge of, of Goldman? Oh, I think that, that the partnership of Goldman Sachs and the former partners of Goldman Sachs it has always been a it's tough to stay on top there. Yes, it has always been a soap opera. Always. Think he, uh, there have been art. You know, you can go back and read Hank the articles Paulson? about before they were public. Before they were yeah, public, yeah. it was always right. A, but how about Hank? Hank was always. It was a soap of, opera too. I don't remember people saying he, he's not good at what he's. But it was doing. a soap opera because they thought that he was going to take the company public and they were going to, he was going to ruin the partnership. Right. Oh, it was always at some point along the way there I was something. I just don't remember like a Bob Chapek type, but where, where you're thinking this guy just it should not be in the job. His point yesterday was when 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 it was when the point was made that several partners have left five in one week. His point was that's not any different than the usual stock's turnover. fine. Yeah. I was checking Apple too because it's it's the next story. It's down six percent. Uh, fell nearly three percent yesterday. Down six percent in the last three sessions, but. The all-time high is just under, um, let me just see Apple. I mean, it's only down, is it down 10% from the all-time high? That's, that's the yeah, quick I think calculation the, I did. The, look at the, the, the dip just in the last few days is like $200 billion. Of course, it's a huge company. I mean, it's, it's an important market um, driver, obviously. Probably the most important. But uh, maybe on a yearly chart, it looks like it's down a little, down uh, what, 177. But the high, I think, is 197, isn't it? Well, 196. One year, it's up 15%. What's that? For the one year, it's up 15%. I don't know about the year to date. But, for but the one year. from an all-time high, I think it's only down 10%. So, I mean, we... I, I was just watching some of the coverage. Uh, year to date, it's 36%. Yeah. yeah, but you know what it is? It's, it's the China market. It's this larger issue of the... Uh, dispute between China and the United States, and if China actually starts to carry out retribution on U.S.-based companies, right. what does that mean, what particularly mean for, for a company like an Apple, where it's their second largest market, uh, it's, a, I think, a fifth of their revenue is coming from there. Obviously, the move so far don't justify the sell-off in the stock. It's what happens from here. And th those big questions that we've asked, because Tim Cook has been so good at walking that tightrope between being a U.S. company, but also being a multinational that is, you know, catering to a Chinese market. Well, what's in the coverage? I would think the world was ending. In March, it was at 152. Yeah. Is that only six months ago? So March, it was 152. Went to 196. What was it? Up 36% for the year today. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the demise of Apple, I think, has been greatly exaggerated. You don't know. I mean, think if it went back down to those lows, that would be... Uh, that would certainly be a negative on, on the uh, NASDAQ and the overall sentiment for the market. On Wednesday, the Wall Street Journal reported the Chinese government was banning foreign-branded mobile devices, including the iPhone, from government offices. And yesterday, Bloomberg uh, said that such a ban might be extended to state-owned enterprises and other government-backed entities. China's uh, foreign ministry making new comments this morning around the matter, responding to U.S. lawmakers' claims that China's iPhone ban aims to limit U.S. companies. The ministry said that the uh, products and services of any country are welcome as long as they comply with China's laws and regulations. Meantime, a new uh, Huawei smartphone unveiled last week uh, sold uh, within, out within hours at a pre-sale price of $960. That sparked speculation that Huawei could reclaim some of the customers that lost to Apple 
after the U.S. restricted access to its supply. We'll get a, a live report uh, from Beijing. But China's exports, four straight months down, dropping in August. So that, just, that was a point Karen Feinerman was making like yesterday. yesterday. Her bigger yeah. concern would be if Chinese consumers can no longer afford to buy iPhones as a result. How do they afford it now? With it? 960 bucks is pretty pricey, too, for the Huawei. A 13, well, it's a lot of people, but we keep harping on it. $13,000 GDP, personal GDP in China. It puts it not even in a, as a high-income country. So we hear all about how they're going to overtake the United States as far as the economy. Maybe total size. Now that's... Oh, that's what I think that's going I think to every, every report, even just this week, there was a new report saying that's off the table. Never going to happen, probably. I don't China, know. Never going to happen, but... Japan could have... Well... It was supposed to happen in 2030, if you remember. So that's off the table. 2040, probably 2050. Probably not going to happen in, in... How about in my lifetime? Would you settle for that? I'm hoping you Maybe live a long in your time, lifetime. my friend. I know. I'm you live I know. A long and time. I plan... On, we're contemporaries. Uh, all of us. And that, that's, sometimes we forget that, because it's one day at a time, right? <laughs> one day at a time. And if you're living at the same time, you, gotta be grateful for you can be day. Charlie Munger. How about all the guys that thought, oh, man, I'm 20 years younger than Charlie Munger. Charlie's going to turn They're all dead. on January 1st. <laughs> right. A lot of the people thought they'd been out. Yeah. I know. We should also tell you about another story brewing here. A Ukrainian official is slamming Elon Musk for ordering engineers to shut off Starlink satellite network over Crimea last year in order to thwart a Ukrainian attack on Russian warships. Musk supplied Starlink Internet terminals to Ukraine in the early days after Russia invaded. But according to the new biography of Musk by Walter Isaacson, Musk had concerns about their use. He told Isaacson that Starlink was not meant to be involved in wars, but for people to watch Netflix and chill and get online for school. Concerning Ukraine's attempted attack on Russian ships, Musk told Isaacson he was worried that it would be like a mini Pearl Harbor and invoke or could provoke the Kremlin into launching a nuclear war. An official in Ukraine said that Musk's decision to disrupt the drone attack by shutting off Internet access allowed Russia to launch missiles at Ukrainian cities from those ships, killing civilians. Isaacson's book is going to be released on Tuesday. He will be joining us that morning right here on Squawk Box. I think we've all gotten an early look at it. Um, Yep. Really deeply reported, really impressive. I haven't finished it yet, uh, but it's it's something that people are going to be talking about for a very long time. But on this point, it's an interesting issue because historically we've had competition. Even even within the military, uh, one of the things Joe was talking about yesterday was there's not enough competition uh, for defense spending in terms of different New suppliers like and military providers. Yeah. But we are now at a point where Starlink is the only provider, if you will, for this kind of communication technology. And so the power and influence that Elon Musk currently has over that in the context of this war and the context of lots of things, that's like a very real thing. And that's a sort of then becomes like a very interesting policy question about what do you do with that power, right? And it's a, I, I, I've gone back and forth on this. I read the article yesterday, and I've gone back and forth on how I feel about it, and I'm not sure. This is the weight of the world on your shoulders type of decision. It's like, all, that reminds me of almost a Dr. Strangelove type yes. situation. And listening to Elon's explanation, you can make a case for it, but then depending on where you come down on the whole conflict, 
Uh, you know, question Ukraine who, can make a case. Well, that, the question of who's, who's supposed case. to be making the case, who's supposed to be making that decision? But right. 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 That's the question. But and, his and decisions do impact what happens. So, no, I mean, I'm sure he figures it out. Normally, it would be a government his, that's making that decision. Right, right. Someone in the government. The but idea it fell that a upon private him to CEO is. Does he know what Netflix and chill means? I mean, I thought that was something dirty, isn't it? I, I oh, think far be it from him to. I think he knows yeah. exactly what it means. <laughs> But yeah, no, that's, but this is the question. Should it's, he be, should he be making that call? Should a government be making that call? Right. He may feel, the, I don't know if he feels the way, he may very well feel the way to be sure the world does. on his shoulders in that regard. I'm At the same sure time, you know. But, because yeah. I, I imagine, I mean, his explanation, he's worried that it leads well, to I mean, a nuclear it, war. Right? Yeah, well, that, but it I, ends up making him look pro-Putin. You know, right. So it, it's, it's a terrible situation that normally a CEO would not be making. Netflix and chill in my house it. doesn't mean diddly. Just in case you were thanks for sharing thinking about it, it means watching Netflix <laughs> and maybe falling asleep. And maybe fall. No, it doesn't mean anything. It means watching it and probably falling asleep as you're. That's the chilling part. Yeah, it's like all of our house. We <laughs> we get up pretty early. So we need a new expression for for what it actually. Right? For these are like young people house. that no. These are. <laughs> is that is that? Do you Netflix and chill? We used to work contemporaries, right? <laughs> Are, we are kind of right. Twenty year difference. Anybody not, who gets up this early, I could. Do you th- are you are, are you just, absolutely sure you're going to outlive me? I'm not. I'm not sure. That's what I mean. I'm not. We're sure contemporary, so we're all living at the same time, and every day is a gift. Yep, that is true. Coming up, that's the way to live. Coming up, that officials are keeping every day with you too. That is a gift. Thank you. We love you too. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, a tech war or a real war. What we're seeing unfolding in real time is nothing short of a tech war between the U.S. and China. Commissioner of the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review, Jacob Helberg, he talks battling for dominance in AI and tech and military might. Export controls will slow China, but it won't permanently stop China from making advances. And that's okay because ultimately artificial intelligence is a race between the U.S. and China. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com now. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Stand by, Joe, in five seconds. Four, three, two, one. His mic here. Good morning. Welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Joe Kernan, along with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. I guess there's some people that don't know that, but we do that at the top of every Getting hour. I want to do it every half hour. You do? You want to say <laughs> Becky Quick, Becky Quick, Becky Quick? No, and Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Andrew, Okay, all right. Apple shares rattled uh, this week on word that China is restricting government employees from using foreign mobile devices. That includes the iPhone. I want to get back to Eunice Yoon, who's in Beijing. 
Uh, she's been uh, reporting out this story for us all week. Eunice. Thanks, Andrew. Well, the latest is that uh, the restrictions on iPhones appear not to only apply to uh, state agencies on a national level, but on a local level as well. Uh, the Nikkei has been quoting sources as saying that. In addition, they've been quoting sources at state firms who've said that Apple Watches as well as AirPods are on the restricted list because of national security concerns. Now, separate to that, um, Apple had a new uh, competitor unveiled today in the form of Huawei. Uh, Huawei um, announced that it has a new, what it's described as most powerful uh, Huawei model uh, that uh, it's taking pre-sales already. This is called the Mate 60 Pro Plus, and this phone boasts greater storage and memory than the Mate 60 Pro, which was uh, launched last week when U.S. Secretary um, of Commerce uh, Gina Raimondo was in town. Um, and this phone, that phone, it was uh, close to 5G speeds, though the company uh, wasn't really uh, clear as to what the specs are. For this one, also not a lot of detail on the specs, but another highlight is that it has satellite messaging via China's own Beidou satellite system. Now, Huawei suppliers rallied on this announcement. Um, Apple suppliers fell. The government, as well as Apple, both haven't really commented on these um, iPhone and the reports of iPhone restrictions. However, uh, the Foreign Ministry did have something to say about the U.S. investigation into whether or not Huawei, with its chips, uh, have violated in any way U.S. export controls, um, saying that this U.S. probe into the new Huawei chip is unreasonable suppression of Chinese companies and also that it only strengthens China's determination for technological breakthroughs. Guys? Well, Eunice, thank you very much. For more on the U.S.-China tensions and the implications for U.S. businesses, we want to bring in Jacob Helberg. He is the commissioner of the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission that was created by Congress. He's also a senior policy advisor to CEO Alex Karp at Palantir. And thank you for being with us today, Jacob. Let's talk through this. It sounds like things are definitely heating up. What do you think the implications are? Well, Becky, it's great to be with you. What we're seeing unfolding in real time is no, nothing short of a tech war between the U.S. and China. The Biden administration is waiting to get more detail on the chemical composition of this new 7 nanometer SMIC chip. But we're hearing lawmakers from Capitol Hill raise legitimate questions about whether SMIC's Huawei chip violates U.S. sanctions. And the Biden administration has put in place export controls aimed at restricting China's ability to obtain certain high-end semiconductor devices with potential military applications, develop and maintain supercomputers, and manufacture advanced semiconductor devices. And what Huawei's breakthrough chip shows is that export controls will slow China, but it won't permanently stop China from making advances. And that's okay, because ultimately, artificial intelligence is a race between the U.S. and China. What, what's the result of that tech war, though? Does it mean that the U.S. market is closed off to Chinese companies and the Chinese market is closed off to you, or going to be closed off to U.S. companies? It basically means that in areas of advanced computing that have significant spillover effects on the development of artificial intelligence and things like large language models, which have potent military applications, we are going to see a bifurcation in, into a Chinese-led technology world and an American-led technology world. The U.S. and China are in a race for global leadership in artificial intelligence. The leadership in Washington and Beijing both understand that AI is the single most consequential breakthrough 
paradigm shifting technology and military affairs in 80 years. And China views AI as central to leapfrogging, you know, to use their term, U.S. military capabilities, particularly in the Indo-Pacific. And while the U.S. still leads the PLA in aerial applications of AI, the PLA is highly competitive in computer vision and underwater autonomous drones. The PLA being the People's Liberation Army of, of China. Correct. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit, though, about what this means for Apple. It, it, we're talking about high-end AI applications, but this sounds like it is playing out on lower technology consumer applications at this point with these restrictions on iPhones in Chinese government offices and perhaps beyond that. Is this an overreaction in the market this week? We, we saw Apple lose $200 billion. The stock's down by 6% uh, just in this week to date. Is that an overreaction? Do you think that this is going to be more? Um, how does this play out? Well, this is the reflection of a growing level of mistrust that a lot of different commercial civilian technologies actually have dual-use applications. So in the U.S., we've actually seen this mistrust take root through bans and restrictions on companies like Huawei and ZTE, where uh, the U.S. government had legitimate concerns that the Chinese government could use its control over Huawei and ZTE in order to collect a lot of information on U.S. citizens and U.S. companies. Ultimately, China has a civil military fusion system that blurs the line between the private and the public sector. So in my view, American concerns are quite legitimate. But on the Beijing side of the fence, a lot of policymakers simply don't believe that the U.S. Uh, has a real separation between the private and the public sector. And ever since the Snowden leaks, you know, that uh, the Snowden leaks has given oxygen to that theory and narrative. So we're seeing these restrictions on iPhones and Teslas for um, by government employees as not only retaliations against American restrictions, but also um, as reflective of that growing mistrust that the U.S. government could use its influence over American companies for geopolitical purposes. Chinese government employees are told they can't buy Teslas, too? The, the Chinese military employees uh, are not allowed to drive Teslas in China since 2021. So does this mean that that market is going to be eventually closed off to what we consider well, to be the, consumer goods? The big picture here is um, the Xi Jinping has been increasingly uh, ratcheting up his rhetoric uh, into a more bellicose, you know, manner. And a lot of signs point to a potential armed conflict between the U.S. and China, potentially within the next Wait, decade. You don't mean a tech and, war? You mean an actual war war? I mean an actual war. Wow. And under that scenario, you know, it's not just the tech sector that's going to be hit, but American companies have hundreds of billions of dollars worth of investments tied up in China. And you're going to see a lot of pain uh, inflicted on, on both American companies and Chinese companies that have sought to do business in both markets. And look, whether or not Xi Jinping decides to go to war is anyone's guess. But here are the facts that we do know. We do know that for the first time since 1949, the words national security have eclipsed economic development in General Secretary Xi's speech last year and at the party congress. We know that in March, she told Putin that uh, they were setting changes afoot, the likes of which the world hadn't seen in 100 years. We know that just in the last year, Xi Jinping gave four different speeches telling his military to prepare for war. He's opened a network of defense mobilization offices around his country, and he's stockpiling wheat, rice, and corn 
uh, like nobody's business. China now holds 69% of the world's corn reserves, 60% of the world's rice reserves, and 51% of the world's wheat reserves. That is not the behavior of a country that is preparing for peacetime. That is the behavior of a country that's very much getting ready for, um, you know, as General Secretary Xi said, uh, worst case scenarios. So how do we respond? Is this a situation where we try to de-escalate or are you the, the number thinking from your approach? One, yeah, the, look, this is, might sound cliche, but the number one thing that the U.S. government can do to respond is reestablish its technological superiority over China, but also other adversaries, and to restore a credible sense of deterrence, meaning instill doubt and fear in the minds of adversaries that attempting a reunification of Taiwan by force will be successful or easy. And there are two companies in the U.S. today that will be absolutely central to restoring a sense of deterrence in American defense, and that's Palantir and Andrill. The reason is we unfortunately have seen over the last few years, big tech companies in the U.S. already renege working too closely with the U.S. Department of Defense. And Palantir is the largest repository of military data and therefore the best suited to train models uh, like large language models and advanced AI models to solve military problems. And Andrew has proven incredibly apt at developing AI-powered hardware. And ultimately, we can't take 20 years to build a submarine and spend $2 trillion to build a plane, we need companies that deliver real results and competitive advantages on the battlefield today because Xi Jinping has uh, said, has indicated that uh, he may attempt a reunification of Taiwan as soon as by 2027, which right. a lot of people Jacob, in Washington think. Just, yeah. it, it occurs to me, I mean, you're, you're talking about Palantir now. Your, your position as the commissioner of the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission that was appointed by sure. Congress, but you're also an advisor to Palantir. Is there a conflict there uh, between those two roles? Well, there isn't insofar as every commissioner on the commission actually serve in a private sector capacity. The standard uh, ethical standard that commissioners abide by is if any issue you know, or point of discussion comes up in commission-related meetings uh, that create a, that raise commercial conflicts of interest with you know, in my case with Palantir, I would recuse myself. And, you know, we have other commissioners that have other different private sector activities. And when topics come up that are germane to their private sector activity, they're expected to recuse themselves as well. So that's the basic ethical standard that everyone abides by. And, and then I guess the commission is set up to make recommendations to Congress and they will kind of dig through the recommendations and decide what they think? That's exactly right, yeah. Okay. Jacob, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Next on Squawk Pod, a price hike, congestion fees, safety on the train. How MTA's CEO John Lieber is keeping New York transportation on the rails and how he's managing all the blowback from customers. The New Jersey commuters are going to benefit from the revenues that are gained out of congestion pricing. <laughs> I'm a New Jersey commuter. No way. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
welcome back to Squawk Pod. Millions of New York City workers returning to the office this month will be faced with higher transit fares. The MTA, the largest public transportation system in the U.S., recently moved to increase fares by 15 cents, its first major price hike since 2015. While the challenge to lure riders back on public transportation hasn't been easy post-pandemic, recent return-to-office mandates could actually help see ridership in New York increase. Becky and Andrew spoke to John Lieber, chair and CEO of the New York MTA. Here's that interview. Well, good morning to you. Good to be with you, Andrew. So where are we really? Um, it has been. There's a lot more folks uh, on the subway than there had been. This is Today is first day of school. In New York, that's a big day. That's another 200 to 300,000 kids. And just as you say, post-Labor Day, you know, people are starting to come back to the office more frequently. Um, we, we've seen a growth. Since I took this job a couple of years ago, ridership's up 50% in the last year. It's up 15 plus percent. We're seeing it. Things are moving in the right What's direction. What's it like on Monday and Friday? Friday, you know, there's no question there's a, you know, there's a, a 10 to 20 percent difference on both Monday and Friday, especially Friday. But uh, the, the numbers have been moving in a positive direction. And among other things, we've been able to address budget deficits. So the New York City transit, transit in the rest of the country is struggling financially. In New York City, we got five years about five years of balanced budgets. Good sign. Just very quickly, is ridership back to pre-pandemic levels? No, we're, 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 at, we're at, depending on what you calculate, between 70 and 80 percent. That's pretty, that's pretty good relative to, again, transit nationwide. Uh, but, uh, you know, as you, as you say, folks are starting to call people back to the office. Right. Maybe they used to do two, three days a week. Now they're, they're moving oh, to four well, days a week. What's it going to take, though, to really get those numbers to be back to pre-pandemic levels? And you also see there's there's more traffic in the city. Yeah. The price, by the way, of taxis uh, and Ubers and the like are higher, I think, in part, by the way, to try to force people to use public transportation and to raise money. I mean, how do you see that dynamic playing out in terms of improving this? You know, people say, how do you improve city life? It's really, you know, it's a lot of people say if you can get more people back on the subways to that kind of pre-pandemic level. Yeah, I mean, listen, the, the, the good news is that when you and I were together about a year ago, we were talking a lot about subway safety. Right. Um, we have dramatically improved subway safety. Governor Hochul, Mayor Adams, the NYPD, the MTA working together. Subway, uh, subway crime is down, um, is down like over 5% over a year ago, but it's lower than it was pre-pandemic. Now, there's some high-profile stuff that happens that sometimes gives people the, imp- the wrong impression. The overall, a lot, of, a lot of really positive improvement. So we're seeing people starting to come back to the subways. The goal is to have more people feel like this is the way to get around New York. It's happening. Congestion pricing. Yeah. It is still the hot topic. Yeah. Do you think it's going to work? I know you do, but what do you think the impact is going to be even in the short term, the transitionary period, where there's going to be folks, I imagine, who are living in suburbs or New Jersey or other places, uh, and they're going to say, you know what, I'm not going to pay this. I, I this doesn't make any you, sense. You know, the, the, there's a misapprehension out there. The, the, the overwhelming majority of commuters from the whole region take mass transit. Even New Jersey, which has been the most vocal in, in, in the state, being most vocal in, in talking about it. Um, the, but is there an know, argument over- to be made that the infrastructure doesn't exist? Meaning, no, no, had, no. had we had better, better, better trains, better lines into the city, stuff that was supposed that, to be done years ago, that you could argue that if that existed, crisis. then you'd say, okay, maybe this all makes a lot Listen, of sense. The, the, the bottom line is, there's plenty of capacity on the MTA. We're running 100 plus percent of pre-COVID service with about 80 percent of the riders. 
The same situation exists in New Jersey. There's plenty of capacity. Well, we, and, and the New Jersey commuters, this is a, something that needs to be said. The New Jersey commuters are going to benefit from the revenues that are gained out of congestion pricing. I'm Becky, hold on commuter. a second. No way. Hold on a second. New Jersey commuters overwhelmingly take mass transit, then they get on the MTA system. So it is to their benefit, the 80 plus percent of New Jersey commuters who take mass transit are going to benefit. And what Wait, you're going to get. Why not charge them when they get on the MTA then, instead of charging them if they never get on the MTA? Well, and we're happy to do that. We're happy to, to, to take. But again, Becky, the point is that every one of those commuters is going to see a better system. And people who drive are going to pay an exorbitant say, amount for it if they do use it. Well, listen, you know, you know, we've been giving away this. There's a public value. What do we need to prioritize in the city? Ambulances can't get to hospitals. Police cars can't get to crimes. Fire trucks can't get to fires. You've got to do something. And what, we, and what we're prioritizing is these public uses. Bus, bus travel, bus speeds have gone down by 30% in the last 10 years. You've got to do something. You can't just stand I, by and only, do the, nothing. My only point would be is that you make it far more complicated and difficult for people who are already paying a pretty high price to pay the tolls to get over the bridge than to pay to park in the city. You make it exorbitantly expensive by adding another $24 toll on top of it. And, and, and these are people who are then going to go to their employers and say, I don't want to come back into you know the city. What? So is it counterproductive in that it ends up preventing more workers from coming back into the city, doing all of these things, then taking the MTA to go places, then paying to go to restaurants for lunches and the rest of it? It seems like a counterproductive argument at a time that the city is trying to say, we want well, more it worked in here. It worked in London. In London the, key, the key fact point is that in London, you have more people coming into the central business district and fewer cars. That's what we're shooting for. Better air quality, less congestion, safer streets, better transit. That's the point. Where do you send them? bikes, because this is an issue not just true of New York City, but a lot of cities around the world have moved towards creating these bike lanes. You talked about buses now going 10 miles an hour slower in New York. I mean, everything is slower in New York. Part of it is that, that a huge part of the lanes have been taken over by bikes. I like the idea sort of theoretically of bikes. I also know that if you look at bike usage for at least three or four months of the year, it's, it's de minimis because it's so cold outside. And most so, of the bikes are the electric bikes that are bringing Uber Eats to people. And so then the question is sort of how you think about that, given, given what you do for a living. Listen, you know, I, I'm, I, I, we, we're, we're about the subways and the buses right. and the commuter railroad, so I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert in bike travel, but the bottom line you is... Guys, and then, by the way, the buses have taken, created all sorts of bus, special bus lanes to keep your buses, to keep your buses moving. Absolutely, absolutely. Yet. When you have, you know, if you have a single occupancy vehicle that carries one person versus a bus right. that's carrying 50 people, you need to prioritize the 50 people in the bus. Listen, New York is, New York is on the move. We are actually right. seeing people coming back. I think that... You know, I, I, respectfully, I think that prioritizing the more affluent people who pay 50 right. bucks to park in the city is not the issue. And I also have right. never buy, bought into the idea that people are paying two, three hundred dollars for dinner and then going to a Broadway show are not going to come here because of a what will probably be a 15 to 20 dollars uh, toll. So the bottom line On is congestion pricing area. is reducing congestion. Right. We got to do something. It's climate. It's pro climate. Yeah, I, I just we, respectfully we, disagree. I know it's going to well, change I'm, my behavior. And, and, right. and by the way, my, my employer is paying for my commute to come in in the mornings. Okay. But it, it will keep me from wanting to come back for as many things in the afternoons and 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 uh, listen you know i i don't think that you're in the majority but we can certainly keep right. debating it yeah uh, thank you appreciate it it's great to see you bmw dropping it's controversial did you guys hear about this it was crazy they had a subscription service on the car for your heated seats so you had to pay a subscription <laughs> what? 
it. To get your seats, to be able to press the heated seat button and make it work. I get that for free right now. Bingo. Now, last year, the automaker started charging owners in some countries $18 a month for that option. It was an option. like you'd, It was like a, you know, a SaaS model. Well, uh, which or used, an Apple iPhone services uh, model. Which used to be a standard feature. BMW telling Autocar the drivers didn't take to the idea. Well, you think. Uh, and it plans to focus on paid software options such as assisted driving and parking. I think all those well, that's services like well, that's, it, should also be. Well, Tesla has that, don't, don't they? I don't know. Do you have to pay a monthly fee to Tesla? I, I, for I that? thought you could upgrade to a better software package down the road from. Down the road. Stuff. Well, I have, my understanding of that was I thought that you. It's, but that Our was always a down the road that, yeah, that hasn't happened yet. Right. I have right. seat fans, coolers, and heaters, and I don't like either. And never use. Either. I like the heaters; are great. I don't, I don't like the coolers. Those oh, are weird. Steering wheel heater. I mean, it's, it's, I, it's going too far. Up, huh? That's because you're not driving early in the morning when it's 12 degrees outside. Trust me, you need those things. Seat heater. Yeah. My, my wife always turns both sides on it. Yeah. I'm like sitting there going, what? They don't have that with my they fabric. A, they don't have, seat, they have a hot flash. I mean, <laughs> what's they, happening with me? I don't. Do, does that happen? I don't they know. don't have that with my fabric seats. <laughs> And that's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for tuning in on this shortened but very busy week. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a great weekend. We are clear. Thanks, guys. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.